Stephen Warren Hill drops by to talk about his long-awaited opus about Doctor Who in America, Red, White, and Who. Graham Burke and Liz Miles take up the age-old question, were the candy-colored new Daleks in Series 5 rubbish? We say goodbye to Deborah Watling, and we look back at the Doctor Who panel at SDCC. It's July 24th, and this week in time travel is packed. Hi, I'm Chip, and Alyssa is nowhere to be found this week because she is taking a well-deserved vacation, but the prodigal has returned from earlier this season before he went off doing something or other. Hello, Dr. Tom Adda. <laughs> Hello there, how are you? <laughs> Where the hell have you been? Um, I've toured the world and beyond. Um, no, I've, I've been Okay, so one of the other things I do is, uh, apart from being a full-time Doctor Who fan, I'm also a professional musician and head of popular music at a, at a university in the UK. So I've been off being a professional musician. So I've been out touring. So I've been all... Uh, I've been around the UK a little bit, but the big one was I was I was out playing blues music in Russia, um, and so things like that get you to test how. Oh, and of course, down in Suffolk as well at the Mavericks Festival. Um, but things like that demonstrate how much of a Doctor Who fan you are, because if you're willing to do whatever you have to do from a foreign country to watch Doctor Who on or around its first transmission, then you know that you're probably a Who fan. <laughs> and what, pray tell, if this doesn't get you arrested, what did you do in order to to get your weekly Who fix? I made use of my IT powers for evil and routed the signal to the places that I was there. <laughs> but you're a license fee payer, so it's all good. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the BBC is a is hugely important, and of course, I pay for that. Um, so, so yes. So, how have you? I mean, you've been watching you've been watching the show while you've been traveling, and yeah. it's it's a couple of weeks since the big moment, since the big developments. You know, since the series finale, yeah, yeah. since the announcements, and all this other stuff. You were busy and traveling when all of this stuff was happening. Now that it, it's been a little while and the news about Jodie Whittaker and the revelations of the uh, series finale are over and done with, how did it all strike you? Um, well, okay, there, there, there were a lot of things that happened, weren't there? Um, I, I, the big thing, I think, for me was the casting of Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor. Um, which is fab. In fact, I was in the UK when that when that when that happened, and so I actually had to go on my local BBC radio station and talk about it. Um, oh, fantastic! It, it was ace um, because, as you know, and as I'm sure all the fandom knows, and anyone listening to this podcast will know, um, the, the the announcement caused a certain number of waves. But my but my personal um, uh, approach to it is that the casting of uh, Jodie Whittaker underlines the show's capacity to expand, develop, and change, and move on into a new era, and to challenge people. That's what Doctor... Um, Doctor Who maybe not didn't start out as a, as a challenging thing, but it, it, it certainly evolved into that. Um, but over and beyond the normal 
furore or furore um, that accompanies the casting of a doctor. Clearly, that Jodie is female has has, has, has uh, raised certain vocal uh, certain vocal opinions in in fandom. But to me, it's appropriate. I mean, John John Nathan Turner was trailing this from 1981, for goodness' sake. Um, but to me, it underlines that the show is about change, it's about development, it's about inclusion, and it's about challenge. You know, it's, it's, it's about telling stories about a fictional alien who travels around a fictional universe in a time machine. I love the story, it means something to me, and clearly to anyone else that would listen to this podcast. And I do feel, um, for those people who are uh, disappointed and confused and angry, perhaps, that uh, a female has been cast in the role, but... I've got to be honest, it took, it was a matter of sec- there was a certain amount of shock and awe um, when I first heard it because I thought, J.D. Whittaker, she's, uh, she's a brilliant actor. But immediately my response was, okay, so the showrunner thinks the best actor for the role is J.D. Whittaker, brilliant. Okay, I've seen some of her work in Broadchurch. She's a great actor. Um, but I also say that one of the things for me is that that is the lead actor in my favourite show. Get behind her. Um, I, I, I had I, I had opinions about Matt Smith when he was cast, but again, I just I just thought, look, this is the lead actor in my favourite show. My job is to receive it with an open mind, and ultimately, by the, by the time of the Beast Below, I was sold on Matt Smith. Um, I think we have to put a certain amount of context into this as well. Um, certainly, John Pertwee and. Definitely Tom Baker were received with less than positive reviews and, uh, and ideas in some quarters when they were first cast. I think the one that sticks out in my mind was Tom Baker was likened to Harpo Marx. Um, <laughs> um, certainly d- during the uh, the airing of, of Robot. And we know what happened with Tom Baker. Um, so that you've got a good actor, a good actor with pedigree, a good actor with pedigree and history of working with the showrunner being cast in the lead role number one is a good thing number two every newspaper every radio station anyone with an opinion has been talking about doctor who now we have to take a step back from from this and think right the bbc were not historically the best with marketing doctor who um they've got very very good at it with new who definitely um but now not people who have no opinion about Doctor Who are talking about the casting of of, of, uh, of a non-male actor all so, over the world too. I mean, the headlines in most American newspapers covered uh, it in some way or another. But but as someone who is, you know, very much a fan of Doctor Who, that people are, are talking about it is fantastic. And One of the uh, thing- I understand <laughs> that uh, she's got a somewhat local connection to you. Absolutely. So I live in uh, in Yorkshire. Um, and Jodie is was trained, was born, raised, and trained as an actor in Yorkshire. Um, in fact, about fifteen miles from where I'm currently sitting and speaking. And what's nice about this is that maybe the, uh, no, not maybe the day after her casting, they went to her old acting school and they were talking to um, young students um, on the course that she in the acting course that she did, and they were just saying exactly what you'd want to hear if you're a a living person with an eye on the future, that they were inspired by it, that they were in, um, innovated by it, and they thought that, oh, look, so 
I can do this. Um, you know, we, we live in a, one of the reasons I'm a fan of Doctor Who is because it talks about inclusion. It talks about dealing with people on merit. Um, that, that's what the Doctor does. The, doc, the Doctor is somebody who deals with who you are, not what you look like or what your gender is or what colour your hair is. The Doctor teaches, doesn't teach us anything, but, but the Doctor emphasises that we should deal with what is in front of you, not with preconceived ideas, but to think about the present and the future and I can't think of a better way of, enca- of encapsulating and embodying that than saying okay the Doctor is now Jodie Whittaker brilliant perfect um, confront these th- the, you know, the people who have been saying the Doctor has been, a, has been a, ma- a white male for 50 years about time for a change I would have said <laughs> no argument from me uh, it's been so long since we've had you on any other sort of uh, thoughts about series 10 before we uh, move on and take a look at the news of the week well, okay so we haven't spoken since the um, the final two episodes which are, which are brilliant um, I, I, yeah again we've we've had these strange not strange but, but multiple and diverse opinions about about the, t- the last two episodes um, I have to say um, I received the last Last episode with complete joy. Um, one of the things, so so here's Bill, uh, Bill the Cyberman in a barn somewhere, um, and I thought this was a beautiful telling of isolation and misinterpretation um, because. Okay, speaking as I don't want to get into saying speaking as a black man from the nineteen seventies, um, but one of the things I thought it, it illustrated beautifully in the direction because we see Bill, the Doctor sees Bill, everyone else sees a Cyberman. I think what it does is it speaks beautifully and in a very resonant way about what it is to misinterpret the essence of another human being. We see Bill, the Doctor sees Bill, and it's not about her. It's not about that she's black or mixed-raced or female. It's about that she's been through a huge change. And if we're going to be literary about it, it's about um, the, the closest thing I can see to this is Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. You know, do you know, do you know that story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man wakes up one day. He's a giant. He's a giant insect, and it's about you know for those so, so for those people who I'm sure everybody does, but just in case. Um, um, in the story of Metamorphosis by Frank Kafka, a man wakes up one day and he finds he's been turned into a giant insect. And the story, the very short story, is all about the way that different people react to this person now that he has become an insect. And I think that that is really what was going on with Bill the Cyberman. We have invested in Bill. We, we, we know the character. We have a certain amount of love for her. We have a certain amount of interest in her. Um, and again, all of that love and interest is about her character. It's not about her sexuality. It's not about her gender. It's not about her race. It's about who she is as a character. And what the last episode did, I thought, was to encapsulate and illustrate beautifully what it is to be invested in someone as a person and have other people who do not understand that person react to what they think they are and project things on her. Um, Now, I get that America has a problematic, troublesome and developing ultimately a positive and developing relationship with gender and race because that's what we are as humans. We, we develop our relationships and we learn and we go forward, hopefully towards a better thing. So we, I, I believe in the teleological redemption. Um, but ultimately, it was a beautiful, dramatic telling of what it is to know somebody and have them misinterpreted by somebody else. I thought it was a great love story. Um, and so I did not feel quite as... Um, What's the phrase? I didn't. F- How about discomfited? Because uh, yeah, as, as you yeah, as you heard you. from our thank own you. podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, Rachel, Alyssa, and I came up across it feeling 
different levels of discomfort or negativity toward it. Not that we thought that a, a negative message was being intended, but that mm. it, it just – it was deeply uncomfortable to watch from our perspectives. I, I, okay, and here's the thing. Everyone is entitled to an opinion, and an opinion ultimately can be – that, that, that's how you think about it. That's fantastic. But I did rather feel that somehow the point was slightly missed. That literally, this is a this is a story about a, this is a love story. What you, what your it seemed to me that what I experienced was um, validation of my feelings for the character, disappointment and not anger, but just disappointment for the people who did not know Bill um, before she became a sideman because that's all they're dealing with. Making it into a slightly larger thing, um, that is that was the point of the, that was that to me was the whole point i know what it is to be who i am here we are um i'm, I'm a black man from the united kingdom i know what it was to grow up grow up in a time of of, of of racism um i know what it is to live in a time of racism now you know we have brothers and sisters from different faiths and different countries who are experiencing things that they show that they have no they don't they have no right to feel they, they they don't need to feel these things and i think that was being illustrated by the story um, we've invested in Bill. We know who she is, and her gender, sexuality, and race do not matter. We're invested in someone who's good. Um, but I do appreciate that people from different um, cultural backgrounds would react to that differently. But what I saw was almost the, the modern, uh, the modern usage of the Barry Letts idea. Here's a thing. Yes, it's problematic. Deal with it and talk about it. And ultimately, if you're talking about it and thinking about it and trying to change your opinion about it and it's been stimulated by this science f fantasy show then the show is doing its job which is to tell a story the idea of telling stories is to make you think to make you feel to make you consider your life and if it's make if you, and if you feel you have strong opinions about it that's fantastic but my personal feeling was that it was about um, the way that people are are misrepresented and mistreated, um, but again, obviously, I don't have I don't have quite I have a different cultural baggage, but not quite the same as perhaps uh, um, you and our friends in America do have. All right, one last question for you before we move on to the news. Uh, just uh, looking at the breadth of uh, series ten and Peter Capaldi's performance and Pearl Mackey's. How do you mm. think series ten measured up to compared to previous se series? Uh, I'm an old man, um, so <laughs> I think well, well, you're, go you're uh, going to sing the praises of Classic Who, aren't you? Yes, I am, um, because I know that. Well, I, not I know, but I believe that it takes a couple of seasons. And I'm sorry, because I have some friends who are writers. I'm, I, I'm, I, if you're listening to this, you know who you are, and I apologise profusely. Um, but it's my opinion. Um, and I'm willing to have it changed, that it takes at least one, sometimes two seasons for writers to work out how to write for a uh, for the incumbent lead actor. Um, because before they start, what do you know? You have to see them on screen. You have to see what they do. You have to see how they are. Um, and if you're... And if you're lucky, you can get that in the second season. I think for this last season of Peter Capaldi was what I wish it had been from the beginning. But then I come from the past, so I'm willing to take time for something to develop. And that's not just something specific to Doctor Who, you know, in the music industry and so many other industries. You need to make a splash and be big and be bold and get it going for the first time. And I don't think the BBC is stupid. Clearly they know that they've got a hot property in Doctor Who and they need to make it as good as they can. But inside that, there are still relationship principles whereby the company has to work out what the lead actor is, 
what he or she, thankfully, what he or she now is going to make of the role um, and how to write it. So, for instance, you know, it, uh, the thing I used to argue with James, not argue, but I just used to tease um, James and Trevor about was that... And those are your um, former co-hosts on the Doctor Who podcast back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'll still do it with anyone that will sit still long enough to talk to me, really. Um, but with Doctor Who, if I watch the uh, the first Tom Baker's first season, there's what you've got is the strength of the lead actor pushing through scripts that are pretty much written for John Pertwee. In fairness, um, in the second season, it becomes more about Tom Baker. But by the third Tom Baker season, it's him. It's definitely him. Um, and it feels to me that with, that with Peter Capaldi, um, it's he absolutely hit his stride. It was you know, really just absolutely glowing. He's Of course, he's a talented actor. Of course, he's a brilliant actor. But it just feels to me that season 10 or the, you know, and the season that's just finished was the best season of, for him and personally, and not to denigrate the um, the work of the of, of New Who since two thousand and five, but personally, it was the most satisfying and rounded season as a whole. Previous seasons have had moments where I thought, "Yep, that's the Doctor. This is Doctor Who. That's fantastic." I mean, I love Donna as a companion above all others, to be honest. Um, but it just felt to me like season ten was what I absolutely instinctively recognised as Doctor Who. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. What did you think about that? I mean, I'm doing a lot of bloviating over here. I mean, well, what what the, do you reckon? Well, that, I've asked you to bloviate because it's been so long since you've been on, and I've had a few. <laughs> I've had more than a few opportunities. I thought it was a great season. I thought it was a great oh. season. Um, what, did you, what do you like about it? What do you like about it? I liked the sort of happy medium of Peter Capaldi's character between Series 8 and Series 9. It's sort of uh, right in the middle. He's no longer either constantly questioning himself about whether he's a good man or not, nor is he having a full-on midlife crisis with a guitar and a tank. Um, He's right in the middle, and I think that is where I prefer him to be. So... Speaking of bloviating, we've been talking a lot about the series that has been passed. We do need to get to the news. But a quick programming note that just a little later in the podcast, Alyssa will be back with some pre-recorded interview with a pre-recorded interview that we did with Stephen Warren Hill of Red, White and Who, the story of Doctor Who in America and a deep, deep, hugely important discussion about Technicolor Daleks. But that'll be just a, <laughs> that'll be just a few minutes from now. Uh, Let's start off talking about the saddest news from uh, July 21st, and that is uh, the passage of Deborah Watling uh, uh, from Cancer. Now, I confess that early Troughton episodes are one of my weaknesses in Classic Who. Uh, I've seen a lot more Zoe than Victoria, but you actually had the pleasure of interviewing Debbie Watling a few years ago. Yeah, I did. Um, uh, Twenty ten at Hooverville, I got to uh, meet and uh, uh, and interview Debbie. She was fab. Um, I, I, I think one of the one one of the real tragedies is that so many of her episodes have been wiped and are mi- and or are missing. Um, but no, I, I remember. I, I remember doing the research around her career. Um, I remember doing what you would do, what anyone would do, which is to watch those stories. And then sitting down on a stage in front of a couple of hundred Doctor Who fans and talking to uh, this wonderfully professional, warm, welcoming, interesting, funny, uh, and very powerfully feminine 
uh, actor um, who really guided me through the process um, of, of interviewing her. Um, so yeah, she, so, so Deborah Watling arrives in Evil of the Daleks um, and leaves in Fury of the Deep at critical time in the show's history i.e um william hartnell has left we have new we have a new doctor new companions and to be honest debbie becomes the first of the new the first new companion um who's not really known the previous doctor um but i but personally i found her very professional i found her very warm uh, and very willing and giving um one of the things people say about uh, about uh uh, interviewing actors is that what you need to do is just ask them a question and, and keep the conversation going. But what I found was that once once she was aware that I, I was I, I knew um, her, her her history and was interested in it, because of course how can you not be interested in someone who's so funny and interest uh, funny and with so many stories to tell? Certainly at a time. When television was going through, uh, television and her craft were going through so many changes. She really opened up. It was a great conversation. I I think we're in the place now, with no disrespect to Debbie Watling, uh, where so many of the pioneering performers um, and creators in this show that we love so much are beginning to pass away purely because it's been going for so long. And I think that what seemed like a confection and a disposable confection, which is what television was at the time in which she was making it for Doctor Who at the very least, um, has become things that have become something that people refer to and is so valuable to people. Um, you know, the character that she played so well was only one aspect of what she did so well. Yeah, you know, we received the passing of any of our friends and family with sadness, but those, fe- that, but those friends and family that have extended beyond filial um, and genetic bonds to bring us something and add to our experience of the world, such as Deborah Watling and Trevor Baxter, who I'm sure we'll talk about, mm-hmm. um, are especially missed. Absolutely. Um, we will talk about Trevor Baxter in just a bit, but first, here is a quick remembrance about Debbie Watling from Alyssa. I didn't cry at Victoria Waterfield's departure from Doctor Who, in part because I've never actually seen it. No one has for a very long time. The entirety of Fury from the Deep is lost, which is unfortunately a defining feature of Deborah Watling's time on Doctor Who. Although most of her episodes can't be viewed now, her impact on Doctor Who is everlasting. She, in many ways, was the quintessential Doctor Who companion. A little afraid, a little nervous, always trying her hardest to be brave, to be curious, and to really try to have an adventure with the doctor. She was a screamer, and her screams could quite literally save the day. And I think a lot of what we assume are stereotypical traits of the companion really come down to Deborah Watling's portrayal of Victoria. I was very sad to hear about Deborah's passing over this weekend. There's a scene from Tomb of the Cybermen that I have been going back to over and over again uh, since the death of my own father this year. She doesn't have a huge role to play in it. The doctor is trying to reassure her that life will move on when she doesn't have her father. 
He talks about how her father is always going to live in her mind as a memory, something that she will have to call on to really think about, to remember him, that he will always be a part of her, but that the memory won't always be fresh and painful in her mind. And Deborah Watling plays that scene so well because it's really kind of a cruel thing to tell someone who's just lost a family member. And it drives home the doctor's alienness. The fact that he gives this advice to a girl that he's just picked up, shoved in a miniskirt, and brought on another dangerous adventure. But it's a valuable piece of advice I've found. Life moves on, and someone's impact in your life is always going to be felt. You just have to take the time to conjure the image up in front of your mind and watch that memory over and over again. Thankfully, we do have a few episodes of Deborah Watlings to go back to. So thank you, Deborah. Your life was different to anybody else's, and that was the amazing thing. Tom, before we broke there just now, you mentioned uh, also the passing of Trevor Baxter, Professor George Lightfoot himself. Oh, one of the joys of Doctor Who fandom is that we we pay attention. We like the detail. Um, And so you've got these two characters from the Talons of Wen Chiang. Um, If there's anyone who's listening to the podcast who has not watched the Talons of Wen Chiang just yet, go and get it. Go and get it. Tom Baker, Louise Jameson. Terra Baxter. It's, it, it's fabulous. It's everything Doctor Who's supposed to be. Um, but better than that, in the, in, in the fiction of the, sh- of the story, Jago and Professor Lightfoot don't really meet until the last couple of episodes. But thanks to the joy of Big Finish, again, an enterprise run by fans of the show, lovers of stories, um, we've, we've had several seasons of, of Jago and Lightfoot. And it's absolutely glorious it's fantastic um there's even uh, a special edition interview uh, uh, with trevor baxter where he talks more about his career and his background and how he feels about jago and lightfoot but maybe a big shout out here to big finish because what it allows actors to do is to take characters which were well written in the first instance and breathe their life into them once more and to, and to sustain that, that life over a period of time. And that's exactly what Trevor Baxter did. I'm in a very luxurious position whereby I can listen to Big Finish on my journeys to and from work. Um, and I love Jago and Lightfoot. They're, they're absolutely fantastic. You know, the, um, Professor Lightfoot has a great character. Henry Gordon Jago is particularly fantastic too. But again, it's a tribute to the actor's skill um, that a character that was first evidenced 40 years ago, um, continues to live, breathe, excite and surprise us. Um, And so, yeah, again, I received this news with great sadness and in a selfish way, in a very selfish way, because I know there will never be any new work from that particular actor. Um, But for those of you uh, or those listeners of the podcast who subscribe to Big Finish or listen to Big Finish, um, you'll be aware that many of the lead actors now talk with sadness and great respect and love um, about those who have departed and, 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 and passed on. And as a family of fans who make up this community, then you know we, we feel the, the sadness of their passing too. But I'll be honest, in a very selfish, 
horribly selfish way. Um, I recognise the quality of this actor's performance and the joy that he could bring through his voice, just through his voice alone. I mean, that's a great actor. And so, you know, this has been a, this is a, a dark week for, uh, in terms of, of those that have, have moved on to the next thing. It's a sad week for us as Doctor Who fans because we've lost Debbie Watling and Trevor Baxter, both of whom are pivotal characters in Doctor Who. There's been uh, there have been thirteen series of Jago and Lightfoot since oh. 2010, not and not including some of the uh, sort of spinoff material of its own. Um, mm. If you if you wanted to suggest one episode for new listeners to give it a listen, do you have a suggestion? It might be for me. It might be 2015's Jago and Lightfoot and Strax. Just for the Ooh. sheer joy of having Dan Starkey uh, mixing it up as his uh, son Taran fellow. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I can be very specific about this, actually. I would say, um, number one, watch The Talons of Wang Chiang. If you get whatever you have to do, watch The Talons of Wang Chiang. But for Big Finish, start with The Mahogany Murders. Start with The Mahogany Murders and work your way forward. Because um, I'll be honest, my mis- my initial feeling was like, how's this going to work? I'm not sure about this. I put it on and I just didn't stop listening. It's fantastic. And so, oh, I don't want to give it away. If you Okay, if you'll follow my advice, I'd say definitely watch... The talons, the talons of Wang Chiang, um, and then go to the Mahogany Murders and in, and just let kick off, let back and enjoy it. Um, I can't, I, I I can't say anything about the following seasons without horribly spoiling it and ruining it for people. But if you feel engaged by the Mahogany Murders, then everything that comes after that is just a pure joy. It really is. All right. Um, oh, good Lord. I, I, I'm really having to work here because I want to say some of the things that they go on to do and some of the... We have a no-spoiler policy mm, here, yeah, sir. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I would say um, start at the beginning. Go tell on of Wang Chang. Um, not everyone's a Tom Baker fan, but I would say that uh, Talon's... Um, like Pyramids of Mars, is one of those stories that just explains what Doctor Who's about. So I'd say go Talons and then start with the Mahogany Murders and then just keep going. All right. Let's uh, run through the last little bit of the news here. Uh, A Mm. less dramatic departure than uh, the loss of Debbie Watling and Trevor Baxter. Uh, Tom Spilsbury leaving as editor of Doctor Who magazine after about 10 years at the Mm. job. He's been succeeded by Marcus Hearn, who has been a long time involved in the magazine and co-edited it back in the 90s. Doctor Who magazine is... So it's it's almost a throwback how good it is. Uh, mm. I remember the heyday of uh, published science fiction magazines before the internet took over, and I mm. know that uh, I know that DWM is is in many ways a house publication. You know, it is associated with the Doctor Who main office. You know, it is it is an extension of the brand, but it's still got mm. so much editorial independence, and the reviews are. Uh, kind or not kind, as the reviewer determines it. For 10 years and well before that, Doctor Who magazine has been essential in a way that most science fiction magazines are not anymore. And uh, good yeah, on you, yeah. Tom Spilsbury. Yeah, I, we agree. I mean, I remember, I remember um, good Lord, I can remember being a child in a playground receiving the first episode of the, the first editions of Doctor Who Weekly. Um, but yeah, look, to, to, to maintain a print publication 
in an environment which is entirely um, focused, almost almost entirely focused on internet media, and in fact, almost anything other than print, is a huge achievement. I think I met Thomas Pillsbury at a friend's wedding uh, a few years ago. Um, incredibly personable man, but he's done what he thinks he can do, the best he can do, things he can do. And so now it's time to move on to the next thing. Um, I, th- I think to maintain a print publication in this particular environment is a very, very difficult thing. Um, you know, for instance, how do you bring a new spin to content which is instantly available via another media? How do you do that? DWM seems to have done that quite well. They well, engaged- they've, got one, they've got one advantage. Because mm. because of their relationship with the Doctor Who offices, they mm. get exclusives. Right, exactly so. Um, and, of course, the comic strips are particularly good. I think we, mm-hmm. we've just had um, a comic strip which had... The, 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 well, we've, we've, we're in master heaven, aren't we? Um, but we, you know, we've just had a comic strip which which brought back the, the, the Delgado master. Um, but, again, the quality of the... Uh, of the production, you know, the, the actual physical feel of it, which is the obvious thing to say, I suppose, is very, very high. You're right about the exclusives, but we have the comic strips too, so there are more stories. Um, but I think, you know, having spent the amount of time he has done on the publication, um, it, it, it would be unfair for someone who, with that kind of experience and that specific experience of a, ni- I'll say, it, a niche fandom. Um, to not want to go on and, and, and progress, I think. I think one of the one of the dangers with being involved in Doctor Who is because, you know, perhaps for us it's an it, it's an escape from our professional lives and something that we do alongside our professional lives, or you know, as respite. Perhaps sometimes we forget that you know that is actually someone's professional job. So you know, they produce a huge amount of really amazing material over the last de- for years but certainly for me over the last decade um they've brought forward some new direct they've brought forward new writers some wonderful comic strips and i'll say again i particularly like um I, the, the title's gone but i think the last couple of strips that talked about um uh, uh west indian immigrants in the united kingdom um, as well as having the master going, these are great. These these are still these are still really interesting stories. Um, he, if he's done what he thinks is the best he can do over a decade, and that's a long time in publishing. Then right, let's take you know, let him take that to uh, places where he can, he can continue to develop and let his uh, and let his and let uh, is it Mr. Hearn, Marcus Hearn, yes, yeah, yeah, and, and so let Marcus. Now develop, you know, stand on the shoulders of a giant and develop the publication further. Um, I think it's it's telling that as you write, as you rightly just indicated, actually, that, that there's a lot of print publications about science fantasy and science fiction that have that have gone on the wane. But Doctor Who, um, the, the DWM Doctor Who magazine, continues to be something that writers aspire to. That I certainly know of. Um, and people, and something that people are proud to be associated with. And I'm not sure how how much better of a condition you could leave that publication in. People want to write for it. It's got a great audience, and it's going to go from strength to strength. Um, I personally a- appreciate what he's done. I, I read it infrequently, but when I do buy it, it's because it's a it's a big deal, um, and they never fail to deliver. So good luck to you, Tom Spilsbury, uh, and I hope Marcus Hearn continues and builds on the tradition that you've set, that you've laid down. Good man. Uh, one other note uh, from the news of the past is that uh, Chris Chibnall received his, an honorary doctorate from Edge Hill University. And while he was there, he talked about his sort of mission statement for the show very briefly uh, when mm. he takes it over about, 
giving his own childhood excitement over Doctor Who to the next generation of children, uh, focusing on trying to make them just as excited about the show as he was at the time. Because he, as I, I never get tired of reminding folks that those of us who make and listen to podcasts about Doctor Who are not really the target audience for Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> but we are and we're not. But, we're, we're, but, but it is a family show, which means it is for everybody. But you can't leave the kids aside, and that no. seemed to be what uh, Chibnall was mentioning there. He called Doctor Who his dream job, and he attributed getting that job to the success of Broadchurch and luck. So next week on this week in time travel, we will be talking about Chibnall. Uh, and not so much about his luck and not so much about his work on Broadchurch, but uh, his prior contributions to Doctor Who and Torchwood. And we'll sort of see if we can do a little bit of Kremlinology or Chibnology uh, and, figure <laughs> out, and figure out what's coming up next. And finally, uh, yes. Tom and I are recording this before the San Diego Comic-Con panel where Stephen Moffat and... Peter Capaldi and Pearl Mackey and Mark Gatiss and Michelle Gomez and everybody on creation are about to talk about this (laughs) Christmas special. So let's time travel forward just a little bit and talk about what we heard in the future. So joining me for a look at the trailer for Twice Upon a Time and talking other things that may have come out at the San Diego Comic-Con Rachel is here, and that means that we have the full complement of the This Week in Time Travel team uh, on this episode. Hey, Rachel. Hey. So, that was indeed a trailer, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It is so good. I'm so excited. Okay, what is it about the trailer that uh, worked so well for you? Because, well, spoilers, it worked really damn well for me, too. It did. It's, um, I think... You know, when we saw the first doctor appear in the snow at the end of the finale, like I lost my damn mind. I was so excited. And especially knowing how much Peter Capaldi loves this show and the history of it to bring back the first doctor to play against. And of course, having the genius to be able to cast David Bradley in the part from An Adventure in Space and Time is just a phenomenal idea. So to see a little bigger hint of the action... I think was just delightful. And so when it opens, you see kind of a, you know, old school four, three grainy shot. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that appears to be original footage of Hartnell sort of morphing into David Bradley. Yes. Yes. I think that original shot of the snowy area may not have been like it. It may have been from. Like it looks very similar to the tail end of the finale, but then it cuts to Hartnell and then it it morphs into David Bradley. But those lines that he is speaking are directly from the Tenth Planet, which is the First Doctor's last episode. So I think kind of the theory around it is is being confirmed that this takes place at the very very end of the First Doctor's spoiler alert, the very end of the. <laughs> The first doctor's life and now the end of the 12th doctor's life. So these two doctors who are on the verge of regeneration are going to work together, which uh, uh, I'm so excited. That that really is incredible. Now, that is something that we 
pretty much speculated would be the case. You know, the fact that David Bradley is playing the first Doctor is obviously not a surprise. We saw him at the end of the last episode. The setting is not hugely... You know, it, it did feel like the end of the 10th planet um, at the end of the last episode of series 10. Uh, yeah. But then we get some new stuff. We get this notion of being trapped in a moment in time and we have a couple of soldiers facing off each other and one of them just happens to be Mark Gatiss. Yes. So I... You know, I have like mixed emotions about Mark Gatiss, the writer for for the show, but I think he's a superb actor and, you know, he has such a, a devotion and adoration for this show and, of course, is dear friends with Moffat. So, uh, you know, it seems to be only natural that if there was a, a part for him to play that he would get to play it. There's been, you know, a, as they all go out the door, you know. Yeah, I mean, wish fulfillment all over the place. You were, you, you yeah. were saying that perhaps they should have reined it in a little bit when Peter Capaldi was uh, romping through the snow, destroying Cybermen, but um, giving Gatus one last send off to play a character who is called the Captain in mm-hmm. the um, BBC information that's been released, and we st- we don't know much else about that character. Uh, but that is kind of nice. And then... Yeah, his mustache is a little creepy. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. There were times when the Briggs mustache was also not a <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So who knows? There um, may be some heritage going on here. Yeah, he... he so Mark Gatiss in the Comic-Con panel did say that the episode was a Christmas episode, but not too Christmassy, which I think is a good balance to strike because you know obviously it is a christmas episode but because it is dealing with the 12th doctor's regeneration and there's a lot of emotion around it i think you know you want to kind of strike that balance so that's a good sign that he said that right and it also helps that the mortal blow has already been suffered by the doctor um, before so we are not going to see him get killed in twice mm-hmm. upon a time he is just going to um regenerate and i love the title of this episode by the way because uh, mm-hmm. it sort of leans into the fairy tale aspect of doctor who that stephen moffat brought particularly during the matt smith early run um yes. and, and then didn't really do a lot with it afterward except in the occasional episode like that uh, first Frank Cottrell Boyce episode but bringing it all back at the end with twice upon a time you know that, that's yeah two doctors the whole thing I think it's yeah I think it's cool and then the best timed actor credit I've seen in a very very long time Pearl Mackey You and I both had talked about our feelings about uh, the way the last couple of episodes went with Bill. To hear her sound healthy and positive and good, and and to to not know that that's coming, to hear her say, is it the doctor? And then to have the big credits on the screen and Pearl Mackey as Bill, that just sort of telegraphed to me that this is not going to be a Catherine Tate in the end of time sort of cameo kind of thing. And uh, the BBC have confirmed it, that she is going to be active throughout the episode. This is not a glorified cameo. And I am so here for that. 
Me too. I love her so much. And just to get to see her on the screen again will be great. And I think I'm really intrigued to see how this story goes, because in the first Doctor's timeline, it's surrounding the 10th planet story, which is the Mondasian Cyberman story. And she has just been through this. And so you have that connection there. I think it, it should, in theory, work to the episode's advantage, right? I, I would think so. I would think so. We see the two TARDISes side by side. Uh, the first... One is definitely bigger than the other. <laughs> yep, yep. Somebody had to, I mean, you know, you, you, you add on. Well, as you bit. get older. Yeah, you know? yeah. You, you just sort of <laughs> add on. You know, you put in an extension here. It, it is a great trailer. Now, there were some other bits of news that came out of the San Diego panel. Pearl Mackey confirmed that uh, this will be it for Bill, that she's not going to be part of the upcoming series, which most of us pretty much expected. But it's still, yeah. You know, would, I mean, of course, like, like as more. they all do, they say never say never because it's Doctor Who. Of course. But. But as of now, there are no plans. Right. And, you know, and never say never is an operative phrase because who knew that John Sim was going to be coming back? Exactly. Yeah. Anything else that struck you coming out of San Diego? I wouldn't think there's any news per se, but they did show a really great kind of tribute to Peter Capaldi, a little kind of clip show, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, that was a tribute to his time as the doctor, which was really lovely. You know, of course, he got the standing ovation at the main panel. I will say there was a separate interview that was the TV line interview that I watched on YouTube. Um, Michael Osiello interviewing Michelle Gomez and Pearl Mackey. That is a delight. The two of them bouncing off each other are hilarious and um, just very sassy. Very, very sassy. So I highly recommend um, y'all watch it. And Michelle Gomez's hair, by the way. I mean, we talk a lot about... Uh, Peter Capaldi's hair in general, but Michelle Gomez's hair during the panels and these side interviews is amazing. (laughs) It's like, it's just so beautifully coiffed and it's got this braid on the side. It's, it's gorgeous. Her hair on point, Peter Capaldi coming in like a rock star. It was a big weekend for them, even though it felt more like uh, sort of a last run around the ice than, um, than yeah. some, they weren't really promoting the Christmas special so much as taking a victory lap, don't you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, maybe 75% victory lap, 25% Christmas special. Yeah, I mean, I guess Matt Lucas had some funny things to say in the panel. He's just charming. Um, you know, like Nardole or not, Matt Lucas is is really funny. And Stephen Moffat had just some really good things to say about everybody and his time on the show. And um, he had some really great words about Jodie Whittaker and, you know, the show moving forward and, you know, passing the baton, so to speak. That I think he really, you know, love him or hate him, he really gets how lucky he was to get to do this job and that he appreciates the time he's had, um, but he knows that it's time to pass the baton and he's very happy to do so. Right. And he's going to miss being in the room with 7,000 people mm-hmm. whom he's vaguely annoyed. I think that was the phrase that he's <laughs> used over the years. Uh, But come to think of it, that means that this time next year should be 
the coming out party for Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall and their team uh, to promote the upcoming season. So that's going to be yeah, pretty awesome as well. Could be a hot. I mean, you know, Hall H at San Diego Comic Con is always a hot ticket, but I can imagine the the line waiting for next year is going to be pretty big yep i would agree uh rachel thanks for dropping in for uh this look at sdcc now i'm going to go back to the past and continue talking to tom and all of a sudden i'm going to know nothing about this conversation (laughs) so tom you may have noticed that not every doctor who fan comes from the united kingdom Mm, i've heard this one of the joys of the show What's your dominant impression of American Doctor Who fans? Be kind, you're talking to one. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, all of the enthusiasm. All of the enthusiasm. So, 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 so okay, I'm, I'm brought to the show by something which talks about um, diversity, inclusion, and as we talked about with... Um, uh, earlier in the podcast uh, about something which is, is come, comes to you with open arms and asks who you are and what you think, not what you are and what you do, who you are, who you think. It's all about the presence, about it's a meritocracy. Um, and so I, like I'm sure the entire production team in the early, early 1980s, welcomed a, a country full of fans spawned on PBS. Here's the thing, you know, so the text itself, the story itself, the performances themselves are strong enough to draw people in. Um, and that enthusiasm and that particular approach to popular culture that Americans have is something that injected new life into the show. Um, John Nathan Turner recognised the power of that audience. And I... Right, Chip, here I am. We're talking about Doctor Who across the planet um, <laughs> and relating to it. Okay, I'm not sure what else I could say, but this is an amazing thing. Even if I don't agree with some of the opinions that, that are expressed by, by different fans, that could happen with a fan, a fan from Rotherham or from Birmingham or from Southampton. Um, the jo- that I've been able to talk, that, I'm ab- that I am able to talk about this thing I love so much with um, you um, Alicia, Rachel, um, Trevor, who used to do the Doctor Who podcast, anybody else around the world. Oh, good Lord, why would you... <laughs> oh, good Lord! Why, why, why would we not think it was brilliant? Oh, sorry, sorry, yes. Um, in a more um, staid way, um, I welcome the influence and happy uh, the influence and opinion of, of uh, non-British Doctor Who fans. Good Lord, who made the 1996 special? Where did that come from? Who made that? Of course, I think anyone with any sense would wel- would uh, would welcome the influence and opinion um, and now, interaction with with uh, uh, non-British fans because it's it's what's kept the show alive and it's what's going to drive the show into the future. Hallelujah! Now I am aware of some of your countrymen who would see our influence on the 1996 special as reason for condemnation, not celebration. But be that yeah. as it may, um, yeah. So. But but I'm me and I think it's great. So <laughs> so yeah, sorry. Interesting though that you mentioned the convention heritage that John yes. Nathan Turner and the American fans had back in the eighties, because that was one of the uh, areas of emphasis that Alyssa and I discussed when we interviewed Stephen Warren Hill. He's the lead writer of the long-awaited upcoming book Red, White, and Who: The Story of Doctor Who in America. 
and we found out a little bit more about why Doctor Who's weird history in America deserved 700 pages or so of exploration. Let's listen right now. This book has been years, possibly decades in the making. Possibly it's been in the making since 1963. Alyssa and I are happy to welcome to the podcast Stephen Warren Hill to talk about Red, White, and Who, the story of Doctor Who in America. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Thank you. So what's this book all about, Stephen? Well, it uh, it attempts to cover literally everything and i don't like to use overuse the word literally but literally everything that uh relates to doctor who in the country of the united states of america and that goes all the way back to the beginning uh to well you know we cut the book off in uh in 2016 but as we continued post-production on the book we do squeeze a few things in from 2017 as we go. So it really does go all the way from 1963 to 2017. So what about this topic uh, captured your interest? Why did you want to talk about Doctor Who's history in the U.S.? This came about because we, and when I say we, it, it, this, this was sort of an idea that I had, but others had at the same time, and we all sort of, discussed it, talked about it, and decided that um, this book needed to exist. Uh, it, was, it was sort of recognizing that we have such a rich history, uh, particularly in fandom, but, but also just in the broadcast history, of uh, appreciating Doctor Who in the United States, and that that history is not really told anywhere. It's not really recorded anywhere. And we unfortunately are, are starting to lose people whose memories have not been put down in any way and captured. And we don't want to lose that history. We didn't want to lose those stories. And we thought, we better start doing something about it and write this book. And that, that's really how it came about. I think for a lot of new Doctor Who fans... Uh, the younger ones, the folks who just came on since the reboot in 2005, Doctor Who just sort of came out of nowhere, and they, some of them probably just sort of assumed that it was a British thing until it came over here in like 2005 or 2006 when it started airing on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, couldn't be further from the truth, could it? That's that's right. You're probably right in that a lot of the newer fans. Um, probably aren't aware of aren't aware that it was a big success in its own way in the 1980s and uh, hopefully this book will help them discover a lot of that what were some of the differences that you found uh between u.s and uk fandom uh as you were researching this did you know did the broadcast history did that really have a different effect on the growth and development of u.s fandom I think that the largest difference, uh, and and I should preface this by saying that fandom today is is different than fandom was in the 1980s in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book sort of separates them um, because we have to talk about them in in different ways. So 
right now I'm I'm referring mostly to fans in the eighties, mostly female in this country, mm-hmm. and um, not young. A surprising majority of fans in this country in the eighties were uh, in their thirties, forties, late twenties, and many of them were female. That is definitely not the way things were in the UK in the 1980s. And we explore that kind of in detail in, in one self-contained chapter, uh, comparing US fans and UK fans. These days, fandom, pretty much very similar in both countries, both areas, skewing a lot younger and uh, not really paying any attention to gender association whatsoever. I was wondering about that because... Doctor Who in the 80s, I'm old enough to have experienced it. It was running on PBS channels. You made the point uh, when you talked to Stephen Shapansky way back in Radio Free Scarrow 482 that American Doctor Who fans back then, everybody's first episode of the show was something different because PBS schedules were all over the place. It was a really, really Wild West kind of time compared to folks in the UK (laughs) watching watching BBC and watching this show at a communal time, you know, it was, it was part of the mass culture. Yeah. It's that, that's another big difference is we experienced it in a completely different way. We discovered it differently. We lived it differently and we celebrated it differently as well. Um, and, uh, you, you hit on the, the major point there. We, we, everybody pretty much saw a different episode the first time and it, it was just, we weren't. We wouldn't tune in and watch the same episode as somebody else in the con- on the other side of the country, like it was in the UK. Do you think maybe it was a different type of uh, communal environment, maybe a little bit more close knit? Because one of the things I remember uh, from one of the very first Gallifrey ones was uh, people who were fans in the eighties and nineties talking about recording and swapping VHS tapes. You know, trying to coordinate fandom across the country to be able to make sure people got to see episodes that that feels also like a kind of particular aspect of U.S. fandom, how hard people had to work to access the show and uh, share it with other people. You're absolutely spot on with that. And and you're right that the community was closer knit, but it, it took time to get that way. It It, it took American fans, they had to find each other first. In the UK, you would expect your next door neighbor to at least know what Doctor Who was. And maybe they watched it, maybe they didn't. In the US, you couldn't assume that because it was this obscure thing that, you know, not everybody knew about. And maybe they did. And and you could talk to somebody three counties away, (laughs) one state away, and they wouldn't even have access to Doctor Who, so they wouldn't have any clue what you might be talking about. So it took time for fandom to gel, for fans to discover other fans. Uh, a lot of it happened very rapidly with fan clubs uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and then sort of that from that, uh, it was um, kind of a growing quilt of fandom. Uh, every every once in a while, we would add a few stitches uh, to another row, and um, <laughs> that so so I like your I like the term uh, close knit 
Uh, I'm going with that analogy. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it, it took time, but we got there. And uh, um, it's different again today because there are so many fans that so many fans don't know one another. But I think in especially by the mid-80s, so many fans did know each other, even across the country. I'm curious about the convention culture that was going on around then. You told Stephen uh, that... American conventions really took off in the 80s, and there was a lot of support from John Nathan Turner and the doctors of the time. What sort of triggered that explosion of popularity in the 80s, and what made that go away? And then I'd like us to talk a little bit about what the trigger point was for the show becoming so popular again in the U.S. But let's start with the 80s. The explosion in conventions in the 80s, I think, was a result of fans getting together and organizing and seeing a few successful conventions being run and basically deciding they wanted to do that themselves and uh, learning if it was financially viable for them to do so. Uh, and once discovering that in many cases it was uh, and, and or that they could raise the funds to do it, they would put it on their own convention and, um, because of John Nathan Turner, it was really easy to get guests from Doctor Who, from the current production team of Doctor Who, um, because he made it easy. He made it, uh, he was very, very receptive to American conventions. Some would say, and this book explores, to the detriment of Doctor Who itself. Um, but uh, when when you wanted to put on a convention and you decided that you could and you booked a hotel and you started announcing uh, that tickets were available. And you, if you contacted the BBC production office and somehow got a hold of John Nathan Turner, chances are you'd be in with announcing J&T as a guest and the, probably the current doctor and the current companion. And uh, you could go from there and have a success of it pretty quickly. Um, how that died, I think, was um, after the show ended. Now, curiously enough... Um, the two mainstays, uh, or at least long-running conventions, Gallifrey One and in Chicago First Visions and then Chicago TARDIS, started in 1990 after the first after the classic show ended. Uh, so it's a little bit, uh, it goes against the grain here, but for the most part, conventions did start to die out in the late 1980s as the popularity of the show faded somewhat. Uh, and then once production ended, you didn't have um, the ease of getting members of the production team uh, invited because there was no show. So I think that that is more or less what killed Doctor Who conventions because Visions and, and uh, Gallifrey One weren't necessarily exclusive Doctor Who, they explored other areas as well, and they needed to to stay alive. Um, and then uh, in, in today, the revival of conventions came with the revival of the series. And in particular, I think um, that the show is so popular with with younger people and they like to uh, attend the conventions and sort of embrace the experience of uh, being in a crowd of so many people who love the same things they do. 
So I want to talk about ownership of the show from both a production and uh, a fandom perspective. BBC America has gotten uh, uh, a bit more involved with Doctor Who now. They uh, now show um, the episode same day. Um, I believe they share production credit as well, which uh, makes it eligible, though often ignored um, by U.S. uh, award ceremonies. Um, And there's now a lot of American fans who get really invested in the show itself. Um, Did you find that uh, there's the sense that Americans maybe don't feel that this show completely, you know, is something that they can be a part of that? Or is there sort of the reverse that now as the show has become a lot more popular in the U.S., uh, fans have now started claiming more of I guess ownership is the best way to describe it, a sense of personal investment uh, in the show. I definitely think it's the latter. I think that uh, we're seeing a lot of that with a lot of decisions that are made on the show, things that happen, uh, character changes that drive the fans crazy. And uh, everybody feels that they have a say in it. Um And that is not limited to Doctor Who. We see that uh, with pretty much anything these days. Uh, So I can't, you know, exclusively say that's a Doctor Who thing, but I do think it's um, something that exists a lot more now. And it's probably the Internet that that does it. (laughs) You know, let's blame the Internet. Always. One thing that always, and I don't want to overthink it too much, but... Doctor Who is a British institution. It's a British show. If they ever cast an American as the Doctor, people on both sides of the Atlantic would probably riot a bit. As you've been working on this book, I think you've described it as being a guide not only for Americans' benefit to understand our own history with the show, but also to help UK friends, the the mother country of the show, understand just why things are so wacky and different and what in the world is a Howard De Silva? You know, those sorts of things. Very much so. Um, we, we want this book to be enjoyable by anybody around the world. And an American reader is going to get different things out of it than a UK reader. An American reader is going to read this thinking, oh, I remember that. Or, yeah, this sounds like what I uh, went through. Or if they're a newer fan, they'll enjoy the, the later part of the book. They, they might gain some historical understanding from the early parts of the book. Uh, but a UK fan is hopefully going to learn a lot of things that they didn't know before or understand before, how our television system works, how them paying a BBC license fee to watch TV, how it's similar and how it's different than Americans donating to their public broadcasting system television channels, and also how we experienced and celebrated Doctor Who here compared to there. Um, we knew that we couldn't just sell this book to Americans, so we, we tried very, very hard to be inclusive. And, uh, for example, when, when uh, uh, a beta reader in the UK would say, I don't know what this phrase means, we would fix it. We would explain or reword um, so that the book would be, it wouldn't, take any, it wouldn't take any UK readers out of the reading experience as they went through it. 
So did you discover any truly wacky facts about U.S. Doctor Who fandom as you were researching this? That's a good question. Um, I think we've got some really interesting stories and uh, experiences that that get related in the book. Um, Things that we describe in the introduction, I, I believe, how there's no one fan who could have possibly known about or experienced everything that the book covers because America's a big country and things would happen uh, regionally, so to speak. So um, that's how that's in many ways how Americans will get to know more about what happened in the country around them rather than just in their region. Um, but uh, one of the stories that I really liked a lot was um, that the hands across America event that uh, was an attempt to have a line of people crossing from coast to coast, uh, all joining hands all the way. Uh, it actually passed by a Doctor Who convention the day it, they, excuse me, the day that it happened, and that the uh, the people at the convention, including the guests, led I believe by Colin Baker, went outside and joined in the <laughs> Hands Across America event. That's that's uh, amazing, isn't that? I mean, that's something that I didn't know before, and I, it's a really cool story. I don't know if we have anything particularly weird. Uh, there's, um, I found a little nugget about uh, Doctor Who fans planting trees uh, in honor of the uh, 30th anniversary of the show. Uh, planting oh. American fans planting trees, if I remember right, in Israel or someplace uh, in the Middle East. I can't remember for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was unusual, but you know, when I find a little tiny nugget like that, I want to get it in the book, even though it really doesn't fit, uh, with anything else. So I just squeeze it in there because it's, uh, that's what our book tries to do. Squeeze in everything related to America and Americans, uh, as it, as, uh, it relates to Dr. Who. Well, that's one of the reasons I love still going back to conventions to talk with fans and get those small stories. So it'll be good to read all those stories that maybe I won't ever get to hear otherwise. Absolutely. So Red, White, and Who, how many years have you been working on this, you and your co-authors? I went back and uh, found the first emails in which I pitched the idea to a publisher uh, and that was in uh, 2010, and I mentioned in the email that I had been kicking the idea around in my head for a couple of years at that point. Um, and when I did the pitch, I had a outline uh, written up, and that's sort of as far as anything went. So I had a clear idea of what I wanted to do and an outline, and I pitched the idea. Uh, it was turned down gently and understandably uh, at the time, and after that... Um, I told some of my friends uh, who eventually became part of the whole the, the book team uh, because they had similar ideas. They said, yeah, you know, I've thought about that myself. I think that a book like that should exist. And I've thought about writing it myself. Um, Arnold Blumberg said, yeah, I've thought about publishing a book like that. Maybe I should create a publishing company. Uh, and he did. Um, and, uh, so, so we didn't announce it publicly until 2011, but it had already been percolating for a couple of years up to then. Uh, so I, I think, um, we could officially say it was 2011, 
that we started, but it was really a few years before that, um, even though actual work hadn't begun before that. But that's the long way of saying either 20, you know, 2009 or 2011. <laughs> it's a long time, though. It's 2017 now. At least at least eight years in the making. And it's finally available for pre-order now. So um, if you're interested in getting the comprehensive history of Doctor Who in the United States, how do you get it? You visit atbpublishing.com. Uh, or redwhiteandwho.com, all spelled out, that will redirect you to ATB Publishing. And uh, pre-orders available now. Uh, the book is cover price forty nine ninety five, but this is a 700-page book, 704 pages, 600 images, and it's in full color. You're getting your money's worth. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on my own copy. Neither can I. Uh, Stephen Warren Hill, is, I guess is your title lead writer or what? what is, because you've got a lot of people working with you on this thing. That, that is true. Um, I'm, I call myself the head writer and I was the project manager uh, also. So I led, we had weekly meetings on this book. We've had weekly meetings for years. Uh, every week we would get together and do a, a video chat. Uh, Jennifer Adams Kelly, Nick, Nick Seidler, Robert Warnock, Jan Fennec, and John LaValle all helped out uh, on the writing. Very important tasks for everybody. Uh, and uh, Sean Lyon was involved at the start. He was definitely there in the background all the way through the project also. Um, but uh, he initially said he was going to contribute and then uh, had to take a step back so that he could work on his other projects. Um, but but I definitely want to mention his help, too. And, and our introduction is full of names. Hundreds of people helped on this. Hundreds. And uh, the index for the book is available on the atbpublishing.com website. So I would recommend uh, everybody open up the index and look and see if your name is in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if, if your name does not appear in the index, that doesn't mean you don't appear in the thanks or the uh, photo credits or the contribution credits also. Outstanding. Stephen Warren Hill, thank you so much for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. Thanks. This week on The Incomparable Network, Batman University is open for the summer as Tony Sindelar and Lisa Schmeiser talk about the characters' appearances in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. Game of Thrones recaps are also up on The Incomparable's TV podcast. And my friend Anthony Johnston talks about his graphic novel, The Coldest City, being made into the blockbuster Atomic Blonde on The Incomparable. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Tom, we've got one last bit of business to attend to uh, before we go. Uh, I got to ask, sir, what do you think about red Daleks, orange Daleks, white Daleks, blue Daleks, and yellow Daleks coated in plastic stepping out of a mechanical womb in a Series 5 episode of Doctor Who? Um, hmm. Okay, so... Uh... We have to honest. Okay, so the thing I need to share with you is that I think Daleks are rubbish. 
I really don't like Daleks ha! at all. Um, they're, they're good. Look, I understand their. Okay, fine. Sorry. Um, as a cultural text, I understand their importance um, in as much as if it were not f- potentially if it were not for the Daleks in 1963. Um, then the show may not exist in the way that it does now. And I understand that, you know, the way that they were marketed, the way they were developed, and the things that they represent, i.e. Um, post-war paranoia and the extension of, um, of, of, of fascist ideology. I, to- I, t- I totally get all that. But from a fan point of view, I just think Dalek's a bit rubbish. Well, maybe I should have brought you on for this segment uh, because... <laughs> It may not. It may surprise you to hear, with your levels of Dalek antipathy, that not only do people love Daleks, but they love a certain kind of Dalek. I get it. I get it. And, I get it. And 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 back in series five, a new kind of Dalek was introduced, and it was a little controversial. What do you think of new season? Okay, three questions. One, what do you think of Daleks? Two, what do you think of um, the relationships between Daleks and Davros? And three, what do you think of new who Daleks? Before we get into the new paradigm ones, what do you think of the new... So you've got three questions there. First, what do you think of Daleks full stop? It was not my anticipation that I would be uh, subject to an exam on this point. We're having uh, a conversation. I, That's what a podcast ha! is. Come on. Um, <laughs> number one, I think the Daleks are perfectly good villains that are yeah. subject to overuse. Uh, yeah, number yeah. two, I think that uh, the relationship between the Daleks and Davros is interesting as long as the Daleks are not reduced to simple uh, foot soldiers for Davros. They, need, they ought to be their own thing. Yeah, and yeah. number three, I think the New Who Daleks in general are surprisingly effective considering that the basic design is... Well, I have thoughts about the basic design, but they're yeah. actually going to come out, Tom, in this little segment that's coming up that we call the Department of Received Fan Wisdom. Ooh. Well, here on This Week in Time Travel... We come to you with the weightiest of subjects. So with me, I have Reality Bomb host Graham Burke. Hello. And Verity co-host and part-time spoiler cop Liz Miles. Greetings, listeners of (laughs) other podcasts. (laughs) Oh, listen, Alyssa and I asked you to come by today so that we could talk about the Daleks here on This Week in Time Travel. Specifically, we want to talk about the new paradigm Daleks. Yeah, the ones that everybody hates. Um, hold on, hold on. Let's 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 just stop this separate for a second here. What I, I would have to, I I would ha- I would honestly say, hand on heart, I don't hate the new paradigm Daleks. Do you do you hate the new paradigm Daleks, Liz? I'm very firmly in the like column for these. If there was a little bunch of columns and ticky boxes, I would tick like for these Daleks. As would I. Excuse me, I'm from the Department of Received Fan Wisdom. Is there a problem? All right, best, seg- best, seg- best segment <laughs> intro ever. I just want to point that out. <laughs> so, Graham, Liz, tell us, why do you like the Skittles Daleks? All right. So, I, 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 Liz, do you want to lead off on this one? I, 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 I was inclined to like them due to my own biases in terms of fanishness because uh, one of my favorite Daleks types are the Peter Cushing Daleks which, unlike the ones that are in the television, have always been delightfully colourful. 
and they tend towards the reds and the blues. There aren't any yellows or oranges. So when they decided, hey, we should make Daleks slightly more colorful, I was like, hey, that's okay, that's nice. Ooh, that's pretty. That looks nice. And and then everyone hated them and I didn't really understand why. Because that wasn't the bad thing about the episode. Why are you blaming the Daleks for the episode? That wasn't the bad thing. <laughs> and, and they kind of... I. And the other, I know that the other thing as well as the colour is the shape, because I did at least seven minutes research on this topic, because I obviously really care about why people hate Daleks from one story. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with the shape as well, because they look kind of bigger and chunkier and like they're a big tank that's bearing down on you. And that's, that's kind of scary. A big, cheerful tank about to murder you. That's, that's what I like in my Doctor Who. Apparently. See what I like. What I like about the the new paradigm Daleks is this: is that had they been the Daleks that were designed in two thousand five, no one would say these are terrible. These are these. The, the, everyone would say, "Wow, that is a cunning evolution of of the Dalek shape and silhouette." Don't and, don't don't say evolution I, of the Daleks, please. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is it is to the Daleks what the new Beetle is to the original Beetle. It has a sort of it, it sort of does some funky things with the curves. It does some nice things with the colors. It's it, it's got a nice use of shape. It expands the size slightly. I I think it is a I think it is a wonderful development of 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 the Dalek aesthetic. I think the main mistake it made was. An accident of birth. It didn't exist in 2005. It existed in 2010 after Russell Davies and and Matthew Savage committed the miracle of, and Rob Sheridan committed the miracle of making the Daleks actually believable and actually credible in the actual original classic shape. <laughs> so, but I, I really think I really think that had this not had happened at all, every, if this had happened in 2005, we'd all say, "Wow, those new Daleks are really kind of cool." Yeah, I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> I think I think the main the, well part partly I think it's partly correct. Scottish. The, the it's also midnight. <laughs> I just want to point these facts out. Oh dear lord! I'm being pinched by a temporal mechanics. Um, I think I think the main problem is the execution of the idea because it basically is trying to kill off the previous Dalek design and say, hey, look, we're the newer, cooler, grittier Dalek. They're kind of being portrayed exactly as Poochie in The Simpsons, because someone has oh, put wow. The Simpsons in my head, is portrayed, <laughs> rather than making them an expansion or addition to the Daleks and maybe replacing them a little bit because these are bigger, shinier, scarier things. They decided, hey, let's deliberately say these old ones, they're just not as good as our new cool Poochie designs. Bye, Poochie. Um, yeah, and I, I, the, the color thing, I, I think that is a big deal for some people because the Daleks, even the delightful, colorful Daleks of the Cushion era, have always had a kind of metallic-iness to them. And these ones do look just a smidgen plasticky-ish. If there was one criticism I would have them, it's just make, make, it, make it look like metallic yellow, metallic blue. And then people will probably still hate them, but you can at least say, well, they don't look like plastic, do they? <laughs> I see, I don't have that problem with the design i think the only That's problem good. i have with it have with the design oh oh liz i have missed that scorn oh wow that was just that was just fabulous. i i i it's the back it's that weird kind of 
I don't know whether it's meant to be a winch that comes out of it or what. But it, it looks it looks a bit weird when you put the toy on on a side view. Is is all I'm saying. But well, but otherwise, I, I, I think, love it. I think I think I read that the original idea for the design was it was like their back was like this utility pack thing. They'd CGI the arms around and they'd swap out different tools and things like that. So it's like one of those. G.I. Joe or Action Force figures with the removable backpack or something like that, but an interchangeable, a, a Swiss Army Dalek, basically. I, I have, I have, and I have no problem with this whatsoever. I mean, we already had Swiss Army Daleks, frankly, in the in the '60s. You know, just swap out a swap out a cutting torch or 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 a pair of shears or something like that. I think, I think, I think it's a marvelous idea. But I, I really, I really, I love the design. I actually, I actually think the aesthetic works, and I actually don't think Liz, you actually said anything that really disagreed with me. I think the, no, I think I the main problem, I think the main problem is it tried to supplant it, as you yes. say. Yes, that's because Chip, I'm not Chip Graham. I, I don't essentially disagree with you. I just disagreed with a tiny aspect there. Uh, <laughs> a, a mere trifle. I thought for the sake of conversation, I would, I would engage with the trifle and make it trifler. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the complaints I remember hearing about the Technicolor Lisa Frank Daleks was that a lot of people thought that they were supposed to be direct to merchandising Daleks, that a lot of people looked at them and thought, oh, here's a, you know, brand new merchandise toy opportunity for yes, them. Because the Daleks never had any merchandise before Victory of the Daleks came out. No one ever made a Dalek anything. That's that's just silly. Whatever, whatever they're going to do, they're going to bring out Dalek merchandise. It's been Dalek merchandise since 1963, for goodness sake. It, that's that's ridiculous, I think. I, 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 I find that argument unconvincing. <laughs> In the course of this conversation, the, the New Paradigm Daleks have been compared to Skittles, to... Lisa, what's her name? Um, Did not uh, get clearly that one. not a young girl in the nineties. I'm I'm clearly not. Uh, to the new Volkswagen Beetle, which I will point out, Graham, you did favorably. Um, and, and and people just people just really did freak out over this design, and it shocks me that there is actually an uncanny valley. For Daleks, that you can look at one Dalek over there and say, if it was made in 2005, that's right. And you look at this other one that was made in 2010 that's a little bit taller and has a bit of a hunch, and fans just freaked out. I think it's partially the color of it. And I think, as I say, I think it's because... The pre, it's because the original Dalek design is not exactly awe-inspiring. If you're in I know, 2010, I, 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 I know it's not. But I'm, my point is, is that somehow, somehow from Dalek onward, they made that sh they made that Dalek credible. And I remember once in 2000 in 2005, the summer after the first series aired, I was in, at a barbecue and I heard some two people talking. They're saying, oh yeah, it was like this incredible thing in a mobile tank. And I said, oh, what are they talking about? Some movie? And they said, and they said yeah, they're called the Daleks. And I went, what the hell? <laughs> 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 this is, this is, this is, this is not what I, I mean, what I, I'm, I'm inured to expecting as a Doctor Who fan. But, in, but I think that's what they managed to sort of somehow fool a whole generation of fans into believing, and and that's a, and I think that's that's why it became more actionable because because these these bath these bathtub colored um, you know for, uh, 
imposters are are just not are not what we want. And I think a certain section of fandom, which it's completely understandable, that when you've gone through the 80s and the show that you love and adore has become an object of fun and derision, then you're often very concerned and worried about anything that can be used to poke fun again, to make it look ridiculous or cheap or silly. And when the Daleks have become this very serious, scary, all metal, gold and silver things, and then suddenly these are these bright primary colours, that can be like, whoa, no, you've made my scary evil tank fascists into actual giant children's toys. Whereas on the other hand, I think it's a really interesting choice to make them bright colours because fascists don't generally come in dark hues of red and black and grey. And having the fascists be these bright, cheerful things that are a little more engaging is like, okay, that's subverting it in an interesting way for me. I had not thought of that. I'm really just thinking right now of like multicolored stormtroopers marching through the next Star Wars movie. And that's just the greatest image to put into my head. That's basically the first flash. That's basically the 1980 Flash Gordon movie, by the way. Uh, (laughs) But we digress. I I think the other thing is something that Liz actually said very early on, which is that people, I I think there's a guilt by association. I think Victory of the Daleks is such a rubbish story on every conceivable level that that I think that I think there's a sort of guilt by association with tell us how you real feel there it's so harsh there's a Dalek with a tea tree in it it can't be that bad no it starts out your soldier that was that was great and then it all went down yeah. from there yeah it was it was brilliant when it was copying power of the Daleks and then it became more <laughs> <Yes>. than that <laughs> Those, those are the 15 or 20 seconds I recall. Sure the rest of it was fine. <laughs> so since their original outing, they've sort of been erased from Doctor Who. You see them at glimpses in large group Doctor Who, like large Dalek groups, but you don't really see them on their own anymore. Uh, what do you guys think of that? You think it sort of helps or is kind of hurting to keep them lingering around in the background? Well, I mean, they technically can't actually use them for anything but stationary purposes because they turned out to be a, a health and safety problem. They were, they were, what? they were so. To- yeah, no, that's why they don't use them. Is that is that actually unlike the original Daleks, where you sat down and just moved your legs, you'd actually have to stand up in these things and push them up with your shoulders, and it was actually it was actually painful for the actors to do that. And so, it, so it was either redesign them so they weren't quite so tall and weren't quite so difficult to move around. Or face or face a health and or face a health self and health and safety issue, and in the end they were unpopular anyway. So let's make them stationary Dalek in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say I'm relieved to hear that because I thought it was oh god we're just so embarrassed about this we'll just pretend it never happened, which I thought was a shame and a slight overreaction. But now it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean Stephen Moffat announced that uh, that the old style Daleks would remain as sort of the soldier class and that the new Daleks, including the drone Dalek, were the officer class, which I thought was a little weird. But yeah, it, it always struck me as just sort of capitulation. 
and I'm sure there was a, a large part of that, but I think that, but I think it's also just, I think, but I think it's a practical thing that sort of combined with the capitulation sort of did that. I always, I always want to know how on earth did these, how, I, 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 I mean, I'm not a big, I really want to read the fanfic on that, but I really would want to read the fanfic on how these, how this new class of Daleks, which is going to sweep oh, the, sweep, sweep the universe suddenly, suddenly <laughs> got, suddenly got bumped into, some, suddenly got, got bumped into, ma- bumped into management. It's like the Peter principle of, of Doctor Who fandom. I, it's like, <laughs> you are awkward in every way. You will become a manager. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Which so, explains so, so many of my workplaces, honestly. <laughs> so what you're so what you're saying is that the received fan wisdom that the new paradigm Daleks were eliminated because they were naff is not in fact true. It's not a hundred percent true, no. And so they did not capitulate one hundred percent to received fan wisdom. Correct. So does that mean that the new paradigm Daleks, we have therefore established that they are, in fact, perfectly fine? Yeah, sure, I've got five of them as toys. You don't buy five of something as a toy if it's not perfectly fine. That is the criteria. Probably. Well, I look forward I, I, to our I, I, Twitter I, mentions after this goes live. <laughs> that that checks out. I, I'm actually... Also, I, 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 I have. We've just had um, an episode, two episodes of a Cyberman design comeback that was junked six months after it was originally designed, some fifty odd years ago. And these Daleks, these Daleks made it past their first story. Okay, they're stationary. Okay, they're in the background, but they they made it past the six month mark. In fifty years' time, we're going to be having a big epic end of season finale where it's the sudden return of the Paradigm Daleks, and fans are going to be so excited about it. That's my prediction. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's just crazy talk. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. The two-parter in the year 2035. Plastic (laughs) of the Daleks. Yeah. (laughs) I'd bet money on it. I think it'll it'll be a big finish audio well before then. Well, big finish might be the perfect venue for them. Because because then 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 it's just Nick Briggs doing... Deep Dalek voice, and then his regular. This is a Dalek voice, and, and so yeah, he, all he has to do is just drop his voice a baritone, and and it, it's it's perfect for audio. Okay, and that is, I think, where we should leave it. We have determined that the received fan wisdom is wrong, but that the new paradigm Daleks have a body made for audio. <laughs> <laughs> Liz, Graham, thank you both so much for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. I think we've all learned something today. (laughs) Never to have me and Liz on the show. Sorry. Okay, this has probably been the longest episode of This Week in Time Travel yet, but in our defense, <laughs> we were expecting to take this week off, and then Jody Whitaker comes along and just changes everything. Tom, it has been fantastic to have you back now that you're done touring all over the continent. 
I'm done touring for now. It's good to be on the microphone. Hello, everybody. I'll be back uh, and slightly less tired than even I am now, certainly. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be glad to have you. You, dear listener, can find us on the web at thisweekintimetravel.com or at drwhothisweek on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter at numeral two minute time. Lord Alyssa is on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And Tom is available on Twitter himself at DRTATA. That's D-R-T-A-T-T-A-H. And yeah, this podcast is on Facebook as well. You can, su- <laughs> you can support This Week in Time Travel by subscribing, sharing, and even becoming a member of The Incomparable Network at theincomparable.com slash members. Tom, thanks for being here this week. Alyssa will be back next time, and we will talk to you next week on This Week in Time Travel. All right. Quarks, are they? Jeez. <laughs> hey, you know, let's not quark, say anything quark. bad about the quarks now. Let's, let's, no, quark, let's, quarks are let's sublime. Ba- quarks are yeah. amazing. Quarks are the greatest gift that Doctor Who has bequeathed to the world. Now, the, I, <laughs> I like, I like, I really like the design of the uh, of the uh, new paradigm. The quarks, Dalek. I know they're great, and the quarks. <laughs> I love the quarks too.